is a Woodside Church podcast. Yeah, and I'll get straight into it. Okay. Um, yes, I, I'm going to speak on a, a story from the New Testament where we find Peter getting it right and then immediately afterwards getting it wrong. Is that familiar to anyone? Okay. And so there's two lessons for believers out of this. So, two weeks ago, um, Jonathan Moore preached about Peter's encounter with Jesus in his fishing boat, which led to his repentance. Now I'm going to read another encounter of Peter with Jesus. By this time, he's one of Jesus' followers. He's been designated one of the 12 apostles on whom the new church will be founded. This incident contains very important lessons for us. So let's read the scripture, Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was a way Jesus referred to himself for two reasons. He was emphasizing his humanity. In one sense, it just meant he's an ordinary man. But in another sense, the prophets talked about the Son of Man who would have great victory and come uh, into the presence of the Father. Okay, so that's why I used that title. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, who was dead by this time, having been executed. Some say Elijah. Another say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That might seem a bit strange, but we'll talk about that later. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for such things, for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. 
But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi. Now, the people that read this in the first place, when Matthew wrote, would have known what that signified. It's the job of preachers to make the Bible have the same impact on you today as it would have done on the original hearers. So you have to say, okay, what does that mean? He was in Caesarea Philippi. You just pass over that or some place. Okay, well, Caesarea Philippi was right on the edge of the nation. You can still go to the ruins. Scylla and I, I'm sure some others have been there. And three things strike you as you visit these ruins. And at that time, it would have been a bustling town, and Jesus was walking there, right on the edge of Israel. First, it was a huge rock dominating the area. Okay. Secondly, there was water flowing from the rock, and it still does. Even though it's just a ruin now. And there were various pagan temples to Baal, who's talked about in the Old Testament, a fertility god, to a Greek god called Pan, who in Greek mythology was the god of the countryside, shepherds and sheep, god of spring, and another fertility god. In fact, the name Caesarea Philippi, until it was renamed, is called Panion, and his modern name is Banias, so it's the same getting from that. And, it, and, uh, and also, as its name at this time suggests, it was a centre of emperor worship. In the Roman Empire, the emperor would have been worshipped. And Caesarea Philippi was that. Uh, it was actually built by King Herod's son, Philip, in honour of Caesar. And to make a bit of a name for himself as well. Caesarea Philippi. Okay. Now, you say, well, what's all that got to do with us? It's important because I've got to make it have the same impact on you as it would have people who read it at the time. And so, with all those in that setting, uh, one person said this, Jesus deliberately set himself against the background of the world's religions in all their history and splendor and demanded to be compared with them, okay? And contrasted with them as well, okay? That's that's why he asked this question in Caesarea Philippi, where other things were worshipped. A couple of pictures of Caesarea Philippi, as it is today. Okay, first... So that massive, massive rock and water that flows from it. That's where Jesus was. Next picture. And there are all the temples built into the rock to the other false gods. So against that background, 
Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Well, many said he was a prophet. Just like people today think, yes, he was a great teacher. And in fact, people who've never, who've never read the Bible in their lives still quote bits that Jesus said. Okay? You hear it all the time. And, but if he's just a great teacher, then like other teachers, you could say, well, I like that bit and I'll quote it. That bit... I don't like at all, so I will resist it. Okay, if he was a prophet, similarly, prophets weren't infallible, they didn't get everything right. And some said he was John the Baptist, who'd come back to life again. Some said he was Elijah, that was a compliment, the, great, the greatest Old Testament prophet. Some said he's like Jeremiah, I wonder why he's like Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet and was very unpopular with nationalists. People that wanted to resist Babylon taking them. Just like, and when Jesus said things like, if a Roman soldier asked you to carry a load one mile, say, of course, let me carry it too. Which was a different attitude to oppressors. And so Jesus was likened to Jeremiah because he said things like that too. And so he asked this question. And then Peter gets it right. And he says, well, first of all, Peter did not say, I think you are the Messiah. Or if he was talking in 21st century language, I feel you might be the Messiah. Okay? Because feelings are what matter now. And he didn't, didn't say that. He said, you are the Messiah. That's the promised one. The one that God had promised throughout the Old Testament who would send, it means the anointed one. The Greek equivalent is Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised king. And... It is, and the Christian faith is not in my opinion. Now, you have to be careful with that. We have to be absolutely certain about what we believe because it comes from Jesus. But we don't dishonor other people because that's not, not how the, New, the, the old New Testament church preached the gospel. Sadly, sometimes. Christians can go one extreme or the other, compromise and not be sure of what they believe, or on the other hand, just criticize others. Okay, we avoid that. You know, when Paul went to Athens, which was a center of idolatry, he was very bothered by the idolatry, but he didn't say, you're a load of idol worshippers. He said, as some of your prophets have said, some of your poets have said, rather, when he writes to Titus, he talks about one of these people as being a prophet. But he said, as some of your poets have said. And then he quotes them to also bring the truth about Jesus. So we don't offend, but
but we don't just think we just have one opinion amongst others. Or we don't follow it because it suits our feelings and we get a little goosebumps when we're in a great time of worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's great to have that. But we don't, that's not what we base it on. Because you can get goosebumps at a great concert as well. Okay? So, you're saying, you are the world's true king. That's what it's saying. And Jesus says, God's, the Father's revealed this to you. And that Jesus is the God's true king, therefore to be followed and obeyed, and he's the son of the living God, unlike other gods worshipped in Caesarea Philippi. Even Caesar will die one day. So, then Jesus talked to Peter. And Peter was described as the rock and given the keys. What's this teaching? He says, you, you are the rock and on this, Peter, remember what was just behind him at the time? You saw the picture. You are the rock and upon this rock, I will build my church and I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Well, what does that mean? Roman Catholics, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters will see this as honouring Peter's office and therefore of the popes they believe are as successors. Okay, Protestants and the Orthodox Church, they would say generally it's Peter's faith and confession of Jesus that is the great rock. Okay, so there's different interpretations of this scripture. And that it's the confession, therefore, of all who, it's the faith of all who make the same confession. The confession of Christ is the rock. So, what do I believe about that? I'm a Protestant. I was reminded of that very much this week. I was in, in the Netherlands, in Holland, because my, one of my books has just been translated into Dutch. And, uh, I was addressing the, it was all organized, not by the New Frontiers people out there, but the Dutch Protestant church, like the state church. And so I was talking to a lot of pastors from that about the, about the book on apostolic ministry that I've written. And so I uh, kept saying, we're the Protestants. Okay. So I'm one of them. But there is, there is something unique to Peter. Okay. He was given keys, particularly in the Bible, to open the kingdom to, on the day of Pentecost, he turned the key and 3,000 Jews came to faith. So the Jews were reached by the gospel of Jesus by Peter opening the key. Then, when he went to Samaria, which... Debbie explained all about last week. When he went there, there was a massive revival under 
Philip the Evangelist, but they'd not received the Holy Spirit. And so he went there, opened the keys, and the Holy Spirit fell on the Samaritans, which meant they were united with the Jews as part of the new people of God. Then also Peter was the first to go to a man called Cornelius's house, which is the Gentiles, that represents all the other nations of the world. You've got Jews, Samaritans, and all the rest of us. That's how the Bible presents it. We're in the all the rest of us. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit actually fell on them while Peter was still preaching. And so the key was opened to all the nations of the world to become part of this new people of God. Okay? So it was something unique to Peter. He had the keys. However, now that those doors have been opened, all who point to Christ and preach this confession of faith can give keys of access to enable all nations, all ethnicities, to come in. Okay? So they were given to Peter. And there was something special about Peter. The Roman Catholics are right in that respect. But now, because the, the keys have been given, now, you know, can you hand me my keys, love? I meant to bring them up. <laughs> okay? Now, any of you, I've got the keys to let all sorts of different people into the kingdom of God by making the same confession as Peter made here. Okay, anyone like the keys? Okay, anyone? Come on. Okay, come on then, Stefan. Okay. <laughs> because. You've got the keys now to be able, as you go out this week, you've got keys to allow people in to the kingdom of God as you make this same confession. Okay. And so all these, these doors have been opened and although all those who point to Christ and preach this confession can give key of access to all, including now the many unreached people groups in the world. Uh, Andre... And Natasha, Martin and Dawn and Scylla and I were at our New Frontiers Leaders Conference just a few weeks ago. And again, we were hearing of all the unreached peoples that are now being reached uh, through our movement. It's wonder it was just wonderful. But those were people, one in Africa that others had hardly ever heard of. Very distinctive people group, never had the gospel. And uh, one of our guys had just plant, seen churches planted there. They just uh, laid hands on leaders for them and so on. Okay. Disciples and communities who modestly, that's the right attitude, tirelessly, we don't give up, and faithfully point to Jesus as this, this confession, are disciples and communities that Jesus honors by using to build up his church. Okay. That's who we are. So Christ builds the church and uses our pointing to Christ as 
Peter did to bring people in. The church belongs to him. I will build my church. Nobody else can say my church. You can say, you can say it in the sense of the church I attend or the church I'm part of, but not in the sense of ownership. Sometimes we talk about famous churches as being so-and-so's church, some great preacher, you know. It's, it's completely erroneous. So, <laughs> it's his. And the church belongs to him, not to Peter, not to the Pope or any other church leader. It, and it's the church universal, all the church, all, of all time through history. It was referred to in Matthew 16, later in Matthew 18. He uses similar words to describe the local church. Okay, which we are. And then he says, what you permit will be permit, what you forbid will be forbidden in heaven. The old translation says binding and loosing. The trouble is with those words, they become a little formula and people bind things and loose things. And it can sometimes be almost like a slot machine God. I can say these things and it somehow happens. That's not what he's saying. The words that translated in, meant binding and loosing, but actually it meant what you forbid to happen and what you release or permit to happen. That's what the, so the modern translations use those words. And so what is it? Not that we can say or bind and loose anything and God will do it. It's working out of Jesus' commands. What Jesus has um, forbidden, we forbid. What Jesus releases in amazing power and uh, glory, we release. And we do that, and as we do it, it's already been done in heaven. That's what it means here. It's used in chapter 18 to refer to what's called church discipline. But it's the working out of Jesus' commands. When we proclaim Jesus' call to discipleship, submitting to his authority, we loose. When we announce the danger of unbelief in Jesus, we bind. Okay. So, that's what it means. It means taking the words of Jesus and applying them into every situation. And it's a wonderful, powerful thing when you do that. When you take the words of Jesus and loose them amongst people. When you take the words of Jesus and say, Jesus said, no, don't do, don't do that. He wouldn't be pleased with that. Not in a legal law sense, but in a sense of we're now people that want to please Jesus. Okay. So, and the promise of heaven confirming it gives the church a sense of value and worth. We're not just a load of people that happen to have the same interest. Okay. John, this is old-fashioned language, so forgive me, but John Calvin wrote this, and people haven't written an up-to-date version of Calvin like the NLT Bible or something. So what he said was this, it's a wonderful consolation to godly souls, people that believe, that they know that the news of salvation brought to them by some little mortal man or woman is ratified before God. Amen. 
Do you, get, do you like that? That's how John Calvin, the great, Medi- the great uh, Reformation preacher, put it. And another commentator said this, Peter's privilege of being rock is spiritually repeatable. When church teachers or popes are Christocentric, that means they center on Jesus, they are Peter's successors. When we, like Peter, point to Jesus as the divine answer to human needs, we are rock. And Jesus promises to use us, too, to build his church. He gives us, too, the keys of the kingdom, which are simply effective witness to Jesus. We are brothers and sisters of Peter when we, that's a very old-fashioned word now, eschew, that means avoid. Okay, commentators have to write in language like that, you know, to impress you. Okay, when we avoid self-pretense and faithfully point to Jesus, the church's only divinely authorised teacher. Okay? So it's not my opinion. In fact, you test what I'm saying to you by what Jesus has said. And if you ever hear David Devonish preach something that's not in the word of God, then you don't have to receive it. Okay? In fact, you shouldn't receive it. Or anybody else, for that matter. Okay. But then, having done so well, and Jesus commending him, the next little section, Peter gets it all wrong. Do you ever find that sometimes? You get something right? Wow, oh yeah, I've really gone done well this time. And then you muck up two days later. <laughs> okay, so we don't, we're not too hard on Peter because we're a bit like him. It also shows there's no infallibility in Peter, which has a lesson to some. And Jesus announces he's going to die in Jerusalem. Peter probably a bit proud of what Jesus has said, now tries to take leadership, because Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to build my church through you, you're a leader. So this went to Peter's head a little bit, and he thought he was a leader even over Jesus. And you know, like a good leader, he did what you should do, and someone says something that's not quite right, so you don't rebuke them in front of everybody, you take them aside, and you just have a little quiet word, you understand? And so that's what... It's all right. You haven't said anything wrong this morning. Okay, so... Uh, that's what G- G- Peter does here to Jesus. He takes him aside and says... Because Jesus said, I'm going to be rejected by the leaders. I'm going to be, cruci- I'm going to be killed. And on the third day I'll rise, which Peter completely omit- omitted to notice. And... Uh, um, and took him aside and said, that won't happen to you, Lord. And Jesus shows he's in charge and simply says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> oh, dear. Because that was the same temptation as Jesus had from Satan in the wilderness, which was to win the people of God without suffering at the cross. Satan said, I'll just give you them. If you worship me. Okay. So. Peter. Believed in the anointed son of God. God's final king. He didn't believe in the suffering Christ. Got that? 
We believe both. He's the anointed son of God with total authority. He's also the suffering Christ. The supreme courts of Israel will decide to execute him. And this is a problem for Christians today. Because two views tend to collide. One view, success is the seal that God is in something. So how many Christians talk? If it's worked, God must be in it. Success is what matters. However, Jesus is saying, and he goes on to say in the next few verses, actually, suffering is the evidence that God is in it. Wow. Suffering. Debbie said last week, self-sacrificing love is true freedom. I wrote that down because I thought, that's absolutely it. Okay. So we quote Debbie alongside Calvin and these other commentators. (laughs) Okay. Self-sacrificing love is true freedom. Being Messiah did not mean pomp and power and potential influence. Could I just say, there's a large section of the Christian church over the Atlantic that thinks having the power is what demonstrates your Christianity. And sadly, Christianity is getting linked with power of a particular party. That's not godly. Doesn't mean there shouldn't be Christians in politics. There should be, and we pray for them. But it's not that. Being Messiah did not mean pomp and power and potential influence, but a suffering servant for the sake of the world. Probably why Jesus said in verse 20, don't, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. Why? That sounds strange, doesn't it? It's because they misunderstood the Messiah. They thought he was a political Messiah, not a suffering Messiah. So they'd have spread the wrong gospel. So embrace the cost of discipleship. I'm sorry. I I was late starting. (laughs) Is that all right? Just let me finish. Is that okay? I haven't got much more. To be a follower of Jesus then, Jesus then says, and anyone who wants to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. What's the context? Context is Jesus going to die on the cross. Anyone who wants to follow him must embrace the way of suffering. Sorry about that, folks. Doesn't mean you don't have great glory as well, but that's how it comes. It comes through self-sacrifice, taking up the cross. It's not... Outward symbols of success. To be a follower of Jesus, we turn away from self, from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is used a lot in the New Testament as something not to be followed. From deciding what of Jesus' words and scripture to obey and what not to. That's the temptation for the church, for the Western church today. There are certain things that are acceptable to our culture that Jesus said, so we'll stress those. 
There are certain things that are not acceptable to our modern culture, so we won't mention those. Now, I say you do it carefully. But we don't have the freedom to choose some things of Jesus and not others or of Scripture. Self-denial is not so much giving up chocolates at Lent as it is giving up on ourselves as lords. <laughs> it's a decision to let another lord rule one's life. Okay. As I mentioned, we had our global conference recently. And as well as it being truly global, with 30 languages expressed from the front, One of our leaders who, should, who would normally have been there was arrested the day before the conference and put in a cell for two or three days. Whole emphasis was on stories of the suffering church. There was a greeting from our friends in China. And they now... It was a house church, but when I last visited, there were 600 present on the Sunday in this house church word house church is used in all sorts of different ways so the house church with 600 people in this now because of persecution they're only meeting in groups of 10 to 12 but during that time the size of the church has doubled the most joyful letter of Paul's is a letter to the church in Philippi it's full of this rejoice and again I say rejoice you know, we could sort of say that at the beginning of our worship time. Come on, folks, rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. It was written from prison and to people who were suffering terrible persecution. And we often forget the context of that. And it's getting hard now that in the West we're also living in a hostile environment rather than the benefits being, of being in what was called Christendom, which is that the world view was largely accepted by the, by the culture around the Christian worldview. It doesn't mean they were Christians, but that outlook on life. Now we're not. Therefore, it's hard. But it's actually how most of the church in most of the world is and how most of the church in the most of history has been, and how the church in the New Testament was. And they didn't seem to do too badly out of it. Now, in the West, you may not be put in prison, but you will be cancelled, as they call it now. I know a number of young people who, because they have a certain view, people have said to them, I won't be your friend then. That's hard. But we need to train an emerging generation to do that. Harder than from when I grew up. And we have to face that. Young people growing up as believers in many nations now face more suffering. We mustn't minimize the cost, yet realize that it's harder in many ways for an emerging generation than it was for me. Okay, I gave up a few things, gave up my career. Went to earn a quarter of my previous salary. So, a few things. 
lived in a certain place for three months, Silla and I did. And as most of the people in the church didn't have beds, we didn't have a bed either, so we shared us a tea for three months. That's nothing. Do you understand? We take up our cross and follow him because he is the Christ, the son of the living God. We're certain about that and that his words are Lord over us. Okay? Let's pray. Help us, Lord. Samuel, that was a great prayer earlier. Keep, you've been through suffering, but keep proclaiming with that degree of certainty that you did to us this morning. Younger people here in their teens and twenties, I know most of them are out with the young with the youth group. Be an example in graciously accepting people and yet living under the authority of Jesus. Those who have been through tough times recently. I'm not minimizing the toughness, but I am saying find the redemptive power of knowing you're carrying the cross of Christ in those circumstances. Or your own cross that's like the cross of Christ, I should more accurately say. Lord, I pray, help us as a church, help us to nurture younger people to be able to stand firm. Lord, I pray, and yet not condemn, help us to walk that line of not condemning, because you said you didn't come to condemn the world, but also living ourselves differently. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Run and get your children. Apologise to the children's workers and say, well, it was David Devonish preaching this morning, so. <laughs> okay. God bless. <laughs>